good to see you here worshiping the Lord together this morning. If you've got a Bible with you, we're going to be in Psalm chapter 4 today. So if you will, go there to Psalm chapter 4, Psalm 4. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are Bibles that are there in the chair racks in front of you. And if you are not familiar with where to find things in the Bible, you can find this on page 445 of the Bibles that are there in the chair racks in front of you. As has uh, probably on all of our minds and has already been prayed, today is the last day of 2023. And so tonight, you are going to be laying your head on your pillow for the last time this year, and you are going to be waking up in the new year. All, or at least most of us, are going to lie down tonight. Some of you may be crazy and want to stay up really late. I'm I'm doing well to make it to midnight at this point. (laughs) But we're going to, almost all of us are going to lie down tonight, but not all of us are going to sleep. Not all of us are going to actually find rest. And one of the reasons that some of us are are not going to be able to find rest tonight is because there is conflict in our lives. You cannot live your life on planet Earth and escape conflict. As I talk about this right now, some of you immediately know of an ongoing conflict that you are experiencing right now that is draining you. Some sort of conflict with somebody, either it is a family member, perhaps it is your parents, perhaps it's your children, perhaps it's a spouse, perhaps it is a friend, perhaps it's conflict in your work life. There is no end to the areas in which we are able to experience conflict. And sometimes we can push it out of our minds until we try to go to sleep. And maybe you're like me, you've had the experience of being very tired, falling immediately asleep, only to reawaken about 15 minutes later. And as soon as you wake up, your mind is like, hey, do you want to think about this terrible thing? Now would be a great time to remember that. Maybe it'll help you go back to sleep. But it doesn't, does it? Have you ever found yourself engaged in an imaginary conversation with that person that you are having conflict with while you are laying in bed? It is a wonderful thing to engage in those kind of conversations because they're entirely one-sided. You are able to tell that person everything that you have ever wanted to tell that person. And when you are done telling that person everything that you have ever wanted to tell them, they cower in front of you. They are, they are so sorry that they have hurt you or they, if they have done this to you. You have put them in your, their place. 
and it gives you a great sense of satisfaction. And that sense of satisfaction feels so good that we loop it around and we start the conversation again. You know what it's like to toss and turn, to try different positions to try to get back to sleep, to get up and get a drink, perhaps go somewhere else in the house, perhaps get a snack, and yet you don't find rest. You've had conversations for an hour or two now, but the sun still isn't up and you're still awake. And nobody is listening. Psalm 4 is a poem that we could easily imagine coming out of a situation like this. Whether you have experienced conflict in the past in some relationship, whether you are experiencing it right now, or whether you are going to be experiencing it in this new year, Psalm 4 is for you because it rises up out of conflict with other people. So what I'd like for us to do is take a little bit of time to reflect on this psalm this morning. And so what we're going to do is start simply by reading it together. There's just eight verses in this psalm. I want you to read it carefully with me if you can. I want you to try to let the words of this psalm sink into your soul. I want you to try to to remember a time when you have been awake at night, tossing and turning, strategizing, arguing, getting angry, whatever it is that you've done. I want you to try to put yourself back there, and I want you to feel these words hit you when you're in that space, okay? Psalm 4, verse 1. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know... That the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. There are many people who think that Psalms 3 and 4 are companion psalms that go together. We don't know exactly 
the, the arrangement of the 150 psalms that we have, but we do know that they were arranged intentionally. They weren't just kind of thrown in a bucket, mixed up, and then we said, okay, that one can be one and this one can be two. There is an arrangement to the psalms, and so it makes sense that they might be companion psalms. And Psalm 3 appears to have grown out of David, King David's conflict with his son Absalom. If you have familiarity with the Bible, then you'll remember that there's a time in David's reign when, when, Solomon, uh, when Absalom has been living in exile and David is finally convinced to bring his son Absalom back out of exile. But Absalom does this work of undermining David. And so Absalom positions himself in the city gate, which is a place where uh, sorts of judicial matters were taking place, uh, conflicts were decided, and so, and so uh, Absalom would place himself at the city gate, and his people would come, he would intercept them, and he would listen to their problems, and he would say things like, boy, I wish there was somebody who could really do justice for you in this situation. I, I wish there was a king, I wish there was a justice system that could set things right. Ah, if it wasn't for my dad. Now, he didn't do it that obviously, but he just did this, this constant, steady undermining of David's authority in his kingship until finally Absalom has galvanized enough people around himself that he thinks he's got what it takes to usurp the throne. And that's exactly what he does. He gathers a group of people together and he goes uh, to this feast and there he is anointed king and he has enough people around him and he has enough military might and he does it in such a way that David, the king, literally has to run for his life. He gathers as many of his loyalists as he can, and they take off because they know what's coming. So put yourself in David's position if we're imagining this, the sort of the conflict that he's experiencing. Consider the injustice of what is being done. Consider his realization that all along, Absalom has been undermining him and working behind his back this whole time. And Absalom is his own son. As David is running for his life, there are people who are very excited that Absalom's going to be taking the throne. And there's one person that, that as, as David is traveling out of Jerusalem for his life, there's a guy up on a hill throwing rocks at him. Imagine yourself being in that kind of situation. Imagine that sort of betrayal. There are those who think that, as I said, Psalms 3 and 4 come out of this sort of situation of conflict. That's the potential setting of why this psalm was written. But when do you think this psalm might have been written? I imagine... That this poem was perhaps written in the middle of the night. Because there are references to lying on your bed and finding rest and finding sleep in verses 4 and 8. Sometimes we don't humanize the writings of Scripture enough. But we've got to remember that these things were written by real people that arose out of real circumstances like yours. And so... 
I imagine in my mind is that David is trying to sleep, but he can't. He's tossing and turning, thinking about everything that he's lost, replaying every conversation, thinking about the treachery of his son Absalom. And finally, after tossing and turning for an hour or two, he gets up, he grabs a pen, he grabs paper, he pulls out his phone, whatever it is that you might do, and he pours out his heart in this poem. Let me give you a little bit of the structure of this poem, just so you have something to to sort of hang things on. There is a, a conversation going on here. David is addressing several different parties. In verse 1, we see him addressing God. In verses 2 and 3, we see him addressing his enemies. In verses 4 and 5, we see him addressing his audience. That's us. Can you imagine beyond his wildest dreams the reach of what he gets up to write that night? And then in verses 6 through 8, he addresses God so we've got, we've got really the whole thing being an address to God. It's a, the whole thing is a, a dialogue, a conversation between him and God. His enemies aren't going to read this. And so we've got the, an address to his enemies and to us, bracketed by, on both sides by an address to the Lord. And as we work our way through this poem, this psalm, briefly this morning, I want to point out Four features of this conversation of sorts that David has before God during this sleepless night. Here's the first feature of this conversation that I want us to see in verse 1. We see a plea for relief. A plea for relief. He starts the psalm requesting God's attention. Hear me. Answer me when I call. One of the worst feelings that a person can have is the feeling of being ignored. One of the worst feelings that we can experience is to be in need. To be in to be in a state where we need someone to talk to, where we need someone to listen, where we feel like we need somebody to help and we can't get their attention when we are dialing their number over and over again, but they aren't picking up. And David starts the psalm, as it were, tugging on God's shirt sleeve, saying, will you hear me? Do you see me? Do you know what's going on, and do you care? We've all felt those things before, haven't we? When we experience difficulty, when we experience conflict, some of the, the conflict that with people that are closest to us, that have hurt us the most, when we experience that sort of pain, we ask ourselves, why, God, why has this happened? Do you know this is going on? And if you do know, do you care? 
And after appealing to God for his attention, David is making a plea for relief. And one of the ways he does that is by remembering the relief that he's experienced from God in the past. One of the problems with us, I guess if you could put it that way, one of the problems with me is each time I experience something like this, I'm often tempted to act like I have had no prior experience with God whatsoever. That he and I have never met. That he has never done anything for me in the past. That I have no record in scripture of the way, the things that he has done for his children in the past. That every time, every time I start a new trial, it's like we're starting from square one. Can you identify with that? And so one of the things that we have to discipline ourselves to do when we experience something, something like this, and we're wondering if, God has noticed the pain that we we are in and the difficulty that we are experiencing. We have to remember that this is not the first moment of our relationship with God, but that he has, in fact, numerous times in the past uh, given us relief from our distress. He has a track record of faithfulness. And that's something that we have to intentionally remind ourselves. The God that we are, the God whose sleeve we are tugging on, the God we are dialing over and over again, asking, hear me, give ear to my plea. He has a track record of faithfulness with you. You have experienced time and time again, God show you his faithfulness because that's who he is. Uh, uh, David says, calls him, O God of my righteousness. You are a righteous, and he also says in that verse, he expects God to be gracious. And so we, when we are experiencing conflict like this that, that puts great pain in our hearts, we plea to God, we direct ourselves towards God as the source of our relief. And what we often do is direct all of our energies elsewhere. How can, I, how can I win? How can I fix the situation? How can I turn and inflict an equal amount of pain on that person so you know how I feel and you get a taste of it? And I'm not saying that when we experience interpersonal conflict that there are not solutions to be sought. There are things that we can and should do, but ultimately our posture and our plea for relief is not inward, but outward and upward. We need God. And so we remember what he's done for us and appeal to him on the basis of that, that he continued to be faithful and gracious to us. There's a second feature of this conversation before God in verses 2 and 3. I want us to see the feature of an appeal for respect. An appeal for respect. What David is now doing in this poem that he's written is he's turning to his address his enemies as if they were there. He's going to speak to them, but I want you to recognize 
he's not speaking to his enemies for their benefit. He's speaking to his enemies for his benefit. In, in imagining this dialogue with his enemies, this is for him. And so he asks them questions. How long will you lie? How long will my honor be turned to shame? This is the classic conundrum that shows up particularly in the Psalms time and time again. Why do the wicked prosper? This is one of the most frustrating experiences of the Christian existence. Why do the wicked prosper? And we deal with it over and over again. We have conversations about it in our homes and with our children and with our spouses and with our friends and here at church because very often you do the right thing and you get burned. And we are so outcome-oriented as a culture that we begin asking ourselves the question, if this is the outcome that I am getting from doing the right thing, then perhaps that's not the right thing to do. Because there are other people that are getting the results that I want. And they don't seem to be concerned at all with doing the right thing. How is it fair that I do the right thing and I get these results? And the answer is, it's not fair. Very often, we say things to our kids all the time. When they say it's not fair, life isn't fair. And that's not the greatest response in that moment. <laughs> but life isn't fair. And many times, doing the honorable thing is the thing that will yield you the difficult results. And so you will be sitting there tossing and turning while the person that you are having conflict with is probably happily asleep on a cloud for 12 hours. They are not losing one minute of deep REM sleep. So David has this appeal for respect. He has this appeal for vindication, that this isn't the way it's supposed to be. And I think David is showing us here that it is not selfish to want the vindication of our name. It is not selfish to want our testimony. It is not selfish to want respect. The danger for this is that when this good and right desire, because right God has built into us a sense of justice, so when an injustice is perpetrated, it is natural and right and good to want vindication, to want the respect that we ought to have. But when that desire becomes a demand is when we slip into idolatry. When I cannot move forward through this until I have the thing I have wanted, what has just been revealed in my heart is what I am truly worshiping. So David is having this conversation in verses 2 and 3 with 
with his opponents, with his enemies, and he, he asks them, how long are you going to lie about me and then just skate on while my reputation is in shatters, while tatters, while I run and people pelt me with rocks? But remember I said this conversation with his enemies is not really for them, it's for him. Because look again at what he says in verse 3. He says, but no, he's speaking to his enemies, know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. That's a beautiful phrase. Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. When we are outcome-based, we forget the God dimension of our lives. When we're trying to do what's right and we're getting bad results for ourselves and we're thinking, well, if this is how it goes, then maybe I should just do what they're doing and at least I'll be happy. But David is, in speaking to them, is reminding to reminding himself that God sets apart the godly for himself. If you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, then you are one of countless people that God considers his prized possession. And the Lord has shown over and over again through Scripture that he has something special set apart for his prized possession. And so, even though we may be crying out from our beds and feeling like our prayers are bouncing off the ceiling, David says to, enemy, to his enemies, the end of verse 3, the Lord hears when I call him. I know, though it doesn't feel like it right now, and though everything from an outward viewpoint would say that this isn't true, I know that I am set apart as special for the Lord. And that applies to you, friends. You are special to the Lord, and you are set apart for him. There's a third feature of this psalm that I'd like to point out. We see, first of all, we've seen, first of all, a plea for relief. We see an appeal for respect in verses 2 and 3. And now we see in verses 4 to 5 a path to respond. A path to respond. What David is going to do now in this poem is, he go, is he's going to directly address his audience. He's directly going to address us, you and me. And he's going to give us specific actions that we can take as we have been woken up in the middle of the night and we are tossing and turning as, as our, our stomachs are tied up in knots with this internal turmoil that we are feeling, this conflict that we are feeling. He gives us five actions that we can actually take. The first one is found at the beginning of verse 4 and may be a little bit surprising to us, but he says, 
be angry and do not sin. Be angry. You don't hear that in a sermon very often, do you? Be angry and do not sin. Some of you may have translations that say tremble. And the idea in that is, is trembling with, with anger or with rage. This verse is actually lifted up by the Apostle Paul and used in Ephesians chapter 4, I think. Be angry and do not sin. So I think what David is first of all doing is pushing us towards a biblical and godly reflection of anger. You say, well, that can't be the case. Take it up with the Bible, I guess. Sometimes I think we are more Buddhist than biblical in our understanding of anger. I'm no expert on Buddhism, but Buddhism has this idea of non-attachment. And so if we're careful to not allow ourselves to be overly attached to people or things or circumstances, then when those things are inevitably taken from us, we will not feel either pain on the one side or anger on the other side because we will have practiced this idea of non-attachment. And I think we smuggle some of that sometimes into our faith. Jesus modeled biblical anger on a couple of, of occasions, yet without sin. We know he manifests anger at the flipping of the tables in the temple, but he also manifests anger at the raising of Lazarus. Why does Jesus do that? Why does, why does Jesus display anger at the flipping of the temple tables or at the death of Lazarus that he's going to raise from the dead. He does so because in both instances an injustice has been done. Anger is an emotion that we naturally experience when an injustice is done. In fact, we are God-wired to do so. There are some things that occur that if you are not angry about, would be a sin. And so David says, be angry, but do not sin. A godly expression of anger that avoids, on the one hand, unhealthy detachment, and on the other hand, ungodly sin. Secondly, he says, he, he urges us to reflect. He says, ponder in your own hearts on your beds. Ponder. Think. He doesn't say what to think about. But one of the things he does urge us not to do is to drown out the conflict or the tension or the pain with noise. Now, of course, there may be times where the most godly thing that you can do as you're experiencing this 
in the middle of the night is to get up and read a book for a little while, or listen to some music, or watch a show to derail your mind on something else. That could be the most godly thing you do too. But it is also good in the experience of conflict to sit and reflect. If you do not take the time to intentionally ponder, how will you know what it is that you need from God? If you do not take the time to reflect, how can you think about what you need to do to respond to the conflict. If we do not take the time to reflect, where will we find the space to remember what God has done for us in the past? If we do not take the time to reflect, then how will we hear that still, small voice? We don't want this. But sometimes the most godly thing for us to do is to allow ourselves to feel the hurt and the pain. To name it rather than numb it. Third action. Be silent. This one I feel grows out of what we've just seen with reflection. You cannot reflect if you are not silent. There is a time to speak, and that time to speak is reflected in this poem, right? I mean, one of the very first things that that David does is cry out for God's attention. Will you listen to me? Will you hear me? But he also encourages himself and his readers... He encourages us to be silent. Sometimes we just have to sit before God. And one of the things that we want to do when we're in conflict or we're wrestling with God is we want to listen to sermons or read theological books that explain the problem of pain and and all of are good things to do, right? We ought to have a framework that helps us understand God's providential working in our world and the, the, the ideas of how a good God can allow pain to exist and, and why God doesn't just do something to take this away. We need answers for all of those things, but let me tell you something. Those answers don't take away the pain. They may help you understand it more. But a lot of times we are looking for a book or something so that that we have the answer. And that when we are satisfied with the answer, we can go back to sleep. And sometimes life just hurts. And sometimes God wants us to just stop and be silent in his presence And let him come to us in our pain. And we don't like that. 
because that doesn't seem like solving it. But that's not what God often does. He doesn't just solve it. As we sit in silence before him, he comes near to us. Fourthly, we worship. Beginning of verse 5, David says, offer right sacrifices. That's worship, right? For him, the, the rhythms, gathering with God's people, Sabbath, of offerings for sin, the normal rhythms of worship that were built into the lives of God's people. He lived in anticipation of the cross. We now live in the shadow of the sacrifice of the cross. And so we now live our lives as, remember Romans chapter 12, living sacrifices, which is your spiritual service of worship. As we experience injustice, as we experience the pain of going through life, as we experience betrayal, as we follow in Jesus' footsteps, not turning for evil for evil, we live our lives as a sacrifice for Him. Which is another way of saying we continue worshiping. And then finally, in the fifth place, as we're looking for ways that we can respond, he tells us that we need to trust. The end of verse 5, he says, and put your trust in the Lord. There are no, there is no amount of one-sided conversations that you can have in the middle of the night with that person that are going to fix it. Because I've died, I have I have scripted a whole bunch of conversations, and then when you actually start having the conversation, the script is out the window. Because they don't end up saying the thing you thought they were going to say. <laughs> so you can practice that pretend script all night, or you can put your trust in the Lord. The language is interesting here. It talks about putting your faith, your trust in the Lord, because it kind of sort of implies an action, and, and faith for us is more of a concept. Trust for us is more of a concept, and so I think sometimes that what we might just need to do is, is actively imagine ourselves physically with our bodies putting our trust in the Lord. And it's not a one-time thing. Because I've put my trust in the Lord a lot of times, and then I take it back. And then I, then I give it back to him, and then I take it back, and then I give it back to him, and I realize I've taken it back again. So it's this life of, oh, I'm sorry, this is, I'm supposed to give this to you. Now these actions that we are supposed to take are not steps to be followed in some sort of order. So what David laid out here for us, 
what we should not do is go home and say, all right, I'm experiencing conflict. I'm up in the middle of the night. All right, what's step one? This is not a formula because formulas are meant to give outcomes. And, and that's not what we're doing here. You don't control outcomes. I don't control outcomes. There is precious little that we can actually control. These are actions that we are supposed to take that present us before God that create the space where rest can be found. Does that make sense? It's not, if you do these things, you'll go back to sleep immediately. It's creating the conditions to present our souls, our hearts before God, and then sitting there in the difficulty, in the pain, and letting him work. And that's harder for us to do because I said letting work. And you don't have access to the plan. And I don't know about you, but I would like the plan. I would like to know how many days we're going to do this. And God says, why don't you instead close your lips and be silent? reflect, and worship, and trust. The time is almost gone, and I'm almost done. But there is a fourth feature of this psalm that I want to highlight to you. This dialogue that David has before God and that last piece, which we've already mentioned, is a purpose to rest. A purpose to rest. We've all heard a lot of Christmas music for the past months. For some of you, it never gets old. For some of you, your Christmas music out. But we've all heard John and Yoko over and over again say, let's hope it's a good one. They've got this war protest song that, that says, war is over if you want it. And wouldn't it be nice if it, we could just think it, and it would be. But David is kind of expressing the, the hope that we all have. He says in verse 6, who will show us some good? What I imagine that in our vernacular is, how about some good news for one? Can we get a good letter in the mail? Can we get a good email? Can I get a good text? How about some good news that something went really right in the world yesterday? Who will show us some good? But then David says, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. And here is, what, here is what David is doing here, because he goes on to say, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and their wine 
abound. He's basically saying, he's looking at his enemies and saying, they're doing all the wrong things. I'm doing all the right things. They have taken away my respect. They have told lies about me. And now they're sitting at a table enjoying themselves. But David is looking at the situation with spiritual eyes and he's saying that he is not going to allow himself to be tempted by circumstantial joy. And what he means by that, that at the end of the day, knowing that the Lord has set apart those who are his, knowing that the Lord is righteous and gracious, David is not going to turn down the wrong path, but he is going to remember that at the end of the day, God is going to put more joy in his heart than any set of circumstances possibly could. And that's something that you need to hear this morning. The Lord puts more joy in your heart than any circumstances ever could. That does not mean that the difficulty of your circumstances don't hurt. But it does mean that what we ultimately need is not for everything to be fixed, though, praise God, that's going to happen. What we ultimately need is the joy that only the Lord can provide. And so, he says in verse 8, In peace I will both lie down, and sleep. Anybody can lie down. But sometimes it takes an act of God to sleep. It takes an act of God to rest. If the circumstances with Absalom are the background of this psalm, then this didn't get solved that night. And chances are, whatever conflict that you are experiencing right now or whatever ongoing conflict you are experiencing right now, none of this is formulaic to say if you do this, you'll go right back to sleep and you'll wake up in the morning and everything will, it'll be kind of like, uh, what's the Christmas movie with the guy that wakes up? Christmas Carol, yeah. You're going to wake up in the morning and everything is going to be totally fixed. Because that's not the case. But what David does hold out as hope for himself and what is held out to us as hope in the scriptures this morning is that you can find rest for your soul. In fact, that's what Jesus promised in the New Testament. Jesus said in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Heavy laden means weighed down. And in the context of what we're talking about this morning, weighed down with conflict, hurt, being stabbed in the back, betrayed, experiencing pain, Jesus says, if that's you, then you come to me, and you tell me about it, and then you sit in silence before me and listen, and I will give you rest. 
if you're here with us this morning and you do not know Jesus, maybe something that I've said this morning has struck a chord deep within your heart. And you have Jesus standing before you now with the invitation that you could come to him and rest. This is not, the, this is not an invitation that you come to him He will wave a magic wand over your life and all of those difficulties will just be gone with a magic eraser. Jesus gave himself on the cross for our sins so that we could be forgiven of those sins and have rest. And you can turn to him in faith and experience rest this very morning, the last day of 2023. So the next time you find yourself awake in the middle of the night, wrestling with conflict, your stomach a knots, pull out Psalm 4. Express those things to God, and then go back to bed. It might not be resolved tonight, but God will show us and good. Let's pray. Lord, no doubt there are many people here this morning who are discouraged, who are hurt, who have been wrestling with something from this past year who have been going through it this holiday season and just cannot find rest for their souls. I pray that you would give them space to come to you and to experience a deeper rest and joy that only you can provide. Maybe there's somebody here who's wondering if it's worth living a godly life, if this is how it is. I pray that you'd help them to remember that you have set apart the godly for for yourself. Lord, I pray that you would cause the light of your face to shine upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.